You know, we all have our different greetings as we meet each other in passing. Some of us, like a guy over here to my right, is a hugger. Some of us are high-fivers, good handshakers. We have different ways that we greet friends, maybe even those we don't know. But it is interesting how we might think about greeting somebody who's in the place of authority, who actually deserves our respect and our honor. And then maybe a high five isn't quite the appropriate way to show our respect, huh? Maybe not even a hug. Maybe it's a handshake. Maybe it's standing to show honor and respect as that person enters the room. But what's even more interesting is it's not the same in every culture of how we greet those and honor those who we come into their presence. It is interesting to think about the fact that in different countries and in different ways, those greetings will change. And therefore, it is important for us to know how we ought to honor those who deserve honor. Uh, We even had a late president who failed to do this well. At one point when he visited a country to give the famous peace sign, which in that country was not peace in the way that he gave it. It was actually the exact opposite of peace. It would have behooved him to know that that sign was going to be an unhelpful greeting. Or even to think about uh, a new uh, kind of viral video that's gone around over the last couple years of one of the Queen's guards who thought, my, what an appropriate time to take a selfie video as the Queen of England rounds the corner into your room. And the look on her face in the back of his video told it all. Her disappointment that she was dishonored in the way that he was ready to receive her presence. It is important that we know how to approach those who deserve honor and respect. And to know that we are the ones coming into their presence to offer that type of honor. And how we do that matters. The same applies in our own lives as we think about the way that we honor God and come into his presence as we seek to worship him. And God tells us in his word how we can honor him. It isn't just left up to us to figure out how do we worship God? How do we come into God's presence? No, God is clear in his word that there is a way, a right way, an acceptable way in which we worship But God just doesn't tell us in his word. He actually gives us examples of those who have gone before us of how we are to respond to who he is and what he has done. And we're given many of these examples in what is called often the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So I'm actually going to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This is in the New Testament towards the end of the Bible. And we're going to glance at Hebrews chapter 11 and think briefly here about those who were given as our example. Hebrews 11 gives this list of those who have gone before us, talking about the faith that is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen for it by our ancestor won God's approval. And it goes on to describe faith in the lives of, you'll see there, Verse 4, Abel. Verse 5, Enoch. Verse 7, Noah. And it goes on to all these characters in the Old Testament. 
Today, I start a new series that I'll be walking through kind of sporadically. Uh, I'll have four sermons here this summer, uh, but we're going to continue on that series as uh, I have opportunity to preach and come back to these characters in Hebrews 11 and think about what does their faith display about how we respond to who God is and what does their faith tell us about the way we live our lives? All right, but I know that you're settled in Hebrews 11 and you're looking at all these names, but I'm not going to preach from Hebrews 11. So sorry to disappoint you. I'm going to preach these characters in their Old Testament context. And so this is the pattern that I'll be following, but we're going to be in the Old Testament stories about the way that they live their lives and for us to look at that context and understand what does faith look like. So now I'm going to have you turn to the opposite end of the Bible, all the way to the front, Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start with the story of Abel. Genesis chapter 4, that's on page 3 of your pew Bible, and it will help you to follow along as we consider this story. As I mentioned in my intro, it's important for us to think about the way that we come to worship. And Genesis 4 is going to tell us how Cain and Abel, these two brothers, approached God in worship. We're going to find out quickly that actually worship matters, how we worship matters. The main idea that I want us to think about this morning is this. Acceptable worship can only come from a heart ruled by faith. Acceptable worship can only come from a heart ruled by faith. Now we're going to pick up the story of creation here in Genesis chapter 4, really where uh, Michael Lawrence left off just a few weeks ago. As we had walked through a bit of the creation story, the creation of man and woman, and seeing that it was good, and yet seeing that they sinned against God, and that their sin against the holy God received the consequences of their sin, that there was a curse of sin, there was death, that life was no longer going to be easy. And at the end of Genesis 3, they are kicked out of the garden, no longer in God's presence always, no longer in right fellowship with God, but outside of the garden. And our story picks up here in Genesis chapter 4, with Adam and Eve now continuing on, life outside of the garden, struggling with sin and the curse. So follow along as I read Genesis 4, verses 1 to 16. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a man-child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Well, then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's not surprising that the first example that we are given here in scripture of how we should approach God and be in his presence has to do with worship. It has to do with our walk with God and how we think about him. The primary thing that was lost because of sin, being able to be in God's presence, is what is addressed here. How do we approach God? How do we be in fellowship with God? Well, it's only through acceptable worship. This story talks a lot about Cain. And we're going to think about Cain primarily in this story, but we want to think about that in the context of understanding Abel and Abel's actions. Because it is Abel, the one who had faith, that will inform how we should live. And so we want to draw the focus of this text and this sermon to Abel's offering that was acceptable. We're not given much in his example, but we can learn much from the bad example of Cain. And so I want to walk through two different points this morning to help emphasize our need to have acceptable worship that is found in a heart of faith by first thinking about how we worship matters to God, and secondly, that our heart must be ruled by faith. So let's begin by looking at the text and thinking about how we worship matters to God. We see that man and woman are fulfilling their God-instructed duties as they seek to fill the earth. They have these two children and even Eve proclaiming with her mouth at the start of this section, recognizing that God is the one who is in control, who is the one who gave her this child through the Lord's help. She conceived and had this child to be able to give God praise and recognition for his authority and control. And she has these two boys, Cain and Abel. Abel is a shepherd. Cain is working the ground. Here we see even in their lives that they are living out what God had instructed mankind to do. They are caring for God's creation. They are ones who are about working the ground, seeing the, the earth produce, seeing life carry on and thrive. They are caring for the earth just as God has instructed. I don't think our concern should be about what Cain and Abel themselves are doing in their occupations. They are ones who are actually fulfilling what God had instructed mankind to do. But I also don't think our concern should arise based on just the offerings that were brought. Because we see, even though Abel is a shepherd and, and Cain is working the ground, 
They bring offerings from their occupation. Cain presents to the Lord an offering from the produce. Abel offering from his flock. But the question that I'm going to try to answer and continue to come back to is why was Cain's offering rejected? Why was it not good enough? Well, we have to start thinking about not just the offering itself, but the heart and the motive, the motivation in one's heart by which that offering was given. One quick glance at verse 4 and, and verse 3 help us recognize that Cain brought some of the land's produce, but Abel himself was one who offered firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Specific language that is used to highlight the difference between these two offerings. And when we get to Leviticus and the Levitical law, Leviticus 2 makes it really clear. All right, grain offerings, meat offerings are both acceptable to God. However, Leviticus 2.14 makes it clear that it is the first fruits of the offering that should be brought. And here, Cain makes a decision to bring less than the best to offer to God in worship. It sheds light on how he viewed his worship of God. It sheds light on his half-hearted attempts to give an offering that would be acceptable. He brought some of his produce. This isn't something that should be surprising to us. It wouldn't have been surprising to the readers in Israel that there was a word missing here, that there was no first fruits mentioned. It stands out. Abel brought firstborn. Cain just brought some. And we're going to see in the next few verses that God expected Cain to worship differently. This isn't because God has some unknowable expectation for his creation, but it's actually highlighting the fact that God has put in the heart of every man knowledge of our need to worship a creator, someone who is greater than us. In Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, God says, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. See, the inclination of our hearts is that we would worship a creator, something greater than us. The question is, are we going to worship God? Are we going to worship the creator? Are we going to come to God with hearts ready to worship him for who he is and what he has done? And so we'll unpack this in the coming verses. God rejects the offering in verse four. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In verse five, he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. He rejects the offering, and Cain's response gives evidence of his heart in the matter. Cain does not respond in humility and repentance. No, he responds furious. 
He responds by looking despondent, literally the, the language here of anger that has fallen over his face. Even his physical presence and countenance gives testament to what is in his heart. The rejection of his offering caused him to respond, not just in sadness and disappointment, but anger and fury. When we think about the fact that God has an expectation in worship, that even here in this text, he clearly rejected one and accepted the other. I wonder how that makes us feel in our own hearts. To think that's not fair. How can that be right? What gives God the right to make that decision? How does our heart respond when we struggle to worship? God goes on to warn Cain of his heart condition. Look at verse six. The Lord says to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Hear God reminding Cain. Cain knew in his heart what was right. He chose to worship in a different way. He chose to bring to God something that he knew would not honor God. And so God calls out his wandering heart. You know what it means to do right. And if you do that, won't you be accepted? But then God goes on to warn him of the perilous place that his heart is in. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here, Cain being warned by God that his heart was under attack. If he refused to do what was right, and I think very specifically in this situation, being confronted by God that his worship was not acceptable, the right response would be to repent and to humble himself, to give himself to God's authority and God's rule in his life. But if he were to not do what's right, sin is crouching right at the door. What a wonderful illustration for us. You know, maybe to put this in like really practical but somewhat hilarious terms uh, is if, if we went to a, a friend's house to pick them up and we're sitting in the driveway and we look and there is a mountain lion sitting on their front step, just resting, enjoying the sun. And we as a good friend would call our friend and say, hey, uh, you should not walk out the front door because there is a mountain lion crouching on your front step. And if you go out that door, it will harm you. But I know that there's another door. You can go out the back. That's the right thing to do. And our friend responds, I'll think about it. I don't know about that mountain lion. Might not be that dangerous. Maybe it's sleeping. Maybe I'm a really good jumper. And I can just hop right over it and be safe. Maybe I'm really fast. Wouldn't we call them a fool to ignore the warning? Don't go out that door. Sin is waiting there. Oh, it hasn't attacked you yet, but it is waiting. Your heart is susceptible to its attack, to be ruled over by sin. 
Oh, we would plead with our friend to listen and to hear and to go the other way, to make the other choice and to do what they know is right for their own safety. I wonder if we're the friend that's in the house sometimes. We hear the warning of God's word. We hear the warning of other believers. And yet, we ignore it. Or we just think little of it. Maybe it's not as bad as what they said. I'm stronger than the mountain lion. I can go out there, I'll take it on. What's a little mountain lion? Here, the language being used of sin crouching at the door is literally demonic spiritual oppression at the door. The demon awaits. Do we take that seriously in our own hearts to listen to God's word? To heed the warnings. Daniel spent time on this over the last few sermons in Hebrews, warning us from God's word to listen and to respond appropriately. So what does Cain do? He doesn't listen. We see that Cain's response is to reject God's warning. And what happens? Sin rules over him. Verse 8. Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Do you see how quickly things have changed from a moment of Cain offering unacceptable worship to being warned by God to then committing what I would arguably say is the most heinous sin up to this point in history of murdering another human, someone who is created in God's image with purpose to disregard life. Cain struck out his brother's life because of his anger and his fury over an unacceptable sacrifice. And then for God to confront Cain, where is your brother Abel? And how does Cain respond? Um, Not all that different from his parents, right? To deflect. And maybe even stronger here, to completely deny knowledge. And to say, this isn't my problem. Why am I my brother's keeper? When he knew exactly what had happened. And God delivers the consequences of sin. We see that he is now alienated from the ground in verse 11. Anything that he tries to grow will not prosper. It will not succeed. This one who made his living by working the ground and seeing it prosper. Now the curse is you won't see that ever again. The ground that swallowed your brother's blood, it will never give back to you. Cain's life at this moment in this curse is now meaningless. What he had done for his living and purpose was taken away. And now he is a wanderer. The consequences were deep. And so Cain goes wandering on this earth. All right, there's a lot in Cain's story here that I'm sure many of you would love for me to like explain all the little details. I'm not going to. I'm really sorry. We can talk later about what I might think the text means and says. But what I want to highlight is actually the storyline for Cain. 
To be one who has a heart attitude turned away from worshiping God in the way that he knew was right to ultimately being at a place that he denies God's image in someone else and murders them and receives the curse and the punishment of sin. You know, there's a helpful illustration for me to think about, and I trust it'll be helpful for you, in the world of construction. Uh, Many of you, I know, uh, have had opportunity to like lay tile and to put tile. I was doing this the other day in my bathroom on the shower wall. And there's something really important you have to think about when you're laying tile. Uh, When you start with that first tile, you want to make sure it is right. Right? You want to get that first tile just right, that it's, it's level, it's in the right position. And then with tile number two, guess what? You want to do the same thing. Get it just right and make sure it's level. Because it's easy to start with tile one from personal testimony, and it's off by an eighth of an inch. Who cares? It's close. It looks pretty good. I think we'll be all right. And then by tile 10 and tile 12, you look back, and you're off by half an inch or an inch. And now your wall looks like Picasso did it. And, and you're standing there thinking, how did I get so far off that original mark? It looked great. Well, it's because we weren't careful to double check, to actually consider the importance of having, from the very beginning, that tile correct. I think in our own lives is a question of our willingness to guard our heart from the deceitfulness of sin. It's too easy for us to allow little bits here and there. Oh, this is okay. That sin won't really hurt me. This isn't going to drag me down. I can handle it. And we keep convincing ourselves of that type of sin over and over and over again. Until months and years down the road, we look back and we think, how did I get so far off the mark? How am I so far from worshiping God from a heart that is given to him? It's because we weren't willing to go back and check and check and check our hearts before the Lord. Not out of just routine and duty, but out of a desire to know God and to love God. Proverbs 4 talks about guarding our hearts above all else, for it is the source of life. How seriously in our own Christian walk do we take the need to guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of sin? That we might stay on the line of God's word and what he has called us to be as his creation. I trust that even in this text, you can see that worship matters to God, that there are consequences to those who refuse to worship God as he should be, that God is worthy to be worshiped. But I think the question that stands out to us is if we're convinced that worship matters to God, how can I be so sure that my worship is acceptable? How can I be so sure? I think that's what we see in the rest of the text. As we think about our second point, our hearts must be ruled by faith. Our hearts must be ruled by faith. And really, I just want to dwell on on verse four, that Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. Here's Abel giving of the best of what he had. Even Abel in this moment knew in his heart what was right in worship to give the best. Not only the the firstborn, the the best of his flock in that way, but also the fat portions. And I can attest from going to Matt's barbecue this week and, and getting those burnt ends, 
The fat portions are good. He's bringing the best to offer. This is Abel's heart in this matter, to be able to give back to the Lord. At Leviticus, when we get to Levitical law and Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 27, it's pointing to this is what is expected of the people of Israel, that they would bring their firstborn, the best that they had, to show honor to God. And this is exactly what Abel's offering looks like. But why did Abel do that? Was it just because he's a really good guy and he knew better and he just tried really hard? Now, I think this is where our Hebrews 11 verse 4 text informs us about Abel's heart, that he offered a better sacrifice by faith. It was by faith in Abel's heart that he was able to offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Not through his own strength, not through his own wisdom and his own ability, but in a trust, in a dependence, faith in who God was. And so I think we can look at Abel's life and even this one instance of response and see where his heart was ruled by faith. First, I think Abel is responding by faith in God as the creator. No doubt, Abel would have been talking to his parents about God as the one who created them out of the dust of the ground and out of the rib of Adam. He created and he gave life. All that exists and all that he had, Abel knew, was from God. God sustained him. God gave life. Abel wasn't the one doing that. And to bring back part of his, the work of his hands to display, God, you are the one that have given me this. God, you are the one that have created. Oh, to offer that type of heart response back to God shows faith that it's not us who rules and reigns. No, it is God. But I think secondly, Abel had faith that God was holy. No doubt, Abel was well aware of the consequences of his parents' sin that there was a penalty to be paid to sin against a holy God. And for Abel to respond in a way that is to say, God, you are holy and worthy of this type of worship, of the best that I have. That God is one who would judge sin and judge a heart that is not right and gives itself to sin. And so Abel, in his faith, was able to act in a way that was good and righteous before a good and righteous and holy God. Faith that God was worthy of right worship. Because our holy God will accept worship that comes from a heart of faith and trust in his goodness. But then thirdly, I think Abel's faith is seen in that he is giving back to God because he believes that God is the one who will send a deliverer. After the fall, God promised Adam and Eve that he would send one who would redeem mankind from their sin. That there would be a way to fellowship with God in a right way again. And so this truth brings Abel to the place in which he is worshiping God, realizing God has created everything. He controls everything. And God is holy and therefore is worthy of worship, how can I ever do that unless God is the one who is going to bring me back into right fellowship with him? There is no other way to stand 
before a holy God. Faith that God would send a deliverer to redeem his people. And so Abel's faith wasn't in the idea that he could fix these things for himself, that he could fix creation and make it good enough, but actually in God's faithfulness to send the deliverer that he had promised. And so Abel and his offering of a dead animal and its fat is an example to us of him giving in faith, trusting that God created and that God was worthy of worship in his holiness and that God would send a deliverer to restore fellowship between him and his creation. But how on earth are we supposed to take this? I don't see any of you with goats. Nobody's bringing their fat in here to offer it on the sacrifice. Nobody's coming in here at this type of offering. All right, so how does our heart of faith drive our worship? Our worship can't come from a heart that's focused on ourselves, can it? Our worship must come from a heart that is trusting in God's work and God's work alone that compels us to glorify him. And so our faith in God informs how we worship because we are trusting him. We know that he has done a greater work that we can never do. And so I want to try to get as practical as I can. Worship driven by faith comes from a heart that believes God is the creator and sustainer. How do you think about God today? I don't know what type of job you have, how much you're able to provide for yourself, but are you convinced that you're actually sustaining your own life and your own well-being? Oh, that we would have hearts that are broken and contrite before God saying, God, I don't control any of this. This world is clearly out of control. Anything and everything that I have is yours. It is given to me as a possession to use in wisdom, but for me to give back as I direct my heart in worship because I have faith that you've provided for me. Or do I allow my heart to be captured by the things of this world? To be ruled over that I don't have faith in God. I have faith that tomorrow is going to be a successful day that tomorrow I'm going to succeed in my job, that tomorrow I'm just going to get all the things right so it's a good day. And it shows little faith in God's control, in God being the creator and the sustainer. But I think, secondly, our worship should be driven by faith that comes from a heart that believes God is holy and therefore is worthy of my worship. We can't act like Cain did and worship out of routine, out of some sense of obligation that I have to come before God, but to be able to come to God saying, no, God is holy. And, and I need to restore that walk with him, that fellowship. I need to walk with him. And therefore I'm a fool to come to God in my sin as if I can please God in the way that I live. No, but to come to God recognizing his holiness and to repent of sin. So practically, as we find ourselves in the word every day, I wonder where your heart is at. I wonder how easy it is for you 
to be really angry at someone, to be really bitter, maybe to find yourself lusting or coveting. And to go from that and to come into God's word as if my time in God's word is going to be acceptable to God. As if my worship will be well received by God when heart, when my heart is ruled by sin. But to have the humility to repent as I come to God's word, to ask God to work in my heart, to change me. That doesn't mean I'm not going to sin, but it means I'm not going to ignore my sin as if it doesn't matter to God. I'm going to come to God ready to worship, knowing that he is holy and I can rejoice that he is a holy God. But I think we can also come in here to this room, ignoring our sin. Thinking that maybe the way that I treated others doesn't really matter because now I'm in here. I came to the right building at the right time at the right place. Surely God's going to accept whatever I can bring to him. God forbid that our self-centered worship would be a mockery to him and his worthiness to be worshiped because he alone is holy. And all that leaves us a bit at a loss. How on earth can I present acceptable worship by faith to a God who has created and sustains all things and is holy and separate from sin? And this is the main emphasis of the application I want to make to us here this morning. That our worship should be driven by faith. It comes from a heart that believes God has given me everything that I need in the deliverer, Jesus Christ. When I approach God recognizing I can't come before your throne and worship you in holiness because I am not holy. I am not worthy and you are. The only way that we can do that is to recognize he promised to send a deliverer who would redeem us. A deliverer who would resolve that issue of sin between us and the holy God. And so here is the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ was the one who came. See, God had promised Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all those after that a deliverer would come. Abel himself died. His blood was shed and yet it wasn't enough. And there was no one else after Abel who lived holy enough to be the one who could pay the penalty for sin until Jesus Christ himself coming to this earth as God and as man to live a perfect life and to die on the cross, a death that he did not deserve as the Holy son of God without blemish and his blood was spilt and that blood. Well, that was life-changing blood. It wasn't like Abel. No, his blood was spilt for us. The Holy One who died paying the penalty for sin that we might know life. That we might know hope through our faith in him. But it wasn't just that he stayed in, in the tomb. No, he rose. Showing that he not only conquered sin, but he conquered death. This is the hope of the deliverer. And this is what Abel had in his mind of one who would come to deliver. There was no way to worship God correctly without the deliverer who would change it all, who would bring us into a right relationship with God the Father. 
that's what Cain needed, and that is the faith that Cain had, or that Abel had. Abel had the faith that led him to believe that God would indeed deliver his people. And we have the opportunity to look at the life of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and rejoice that we can be delivered from the rule of sin. That is what fuels our worship. It is faith in our hearts that God has redeemed us. And so if you're here this morning, and this is a a new idea to you, the message of the gospel, our need to repent of sin, I would encourage you, talk to me after the service, talk to someone else that you came with. Today is a day to have our hearts right before God that we would humbly submit before his throne, before Jesus Christ, that we would repent of sin and seek forgiveness that we would be able to go from those who are just trying to offer whatever we can in worship to those who are now offering acceptable worship because it is by our faith that we offer that worship. But fellow Christian, this message of the gospel is just as important for you today as it was the day that you first believed. It is the message of the gospel that fuels our worship in all of life. Paul wrote in Romans 12 too, That is in light of God's mercy, right? His salvation, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What does true worship look like? It is giving of our entire life. All that we have, our possessions, our time, and our energy in faith that God has sent a deliverer to redeem us. And that through him, I have hope and purpose to worship him that it is not in vain, that it is not out of duty, but that it is out of joy of my heart that I am redeemed and changed, that I am a new creature. My faith in God's saving work makes every day an opportunity to offer worship to God. And so I challenge us, as those who are in the household with a spouse, raising children, what does our daily worship look like to them? Or do they see us worshiping things of this world? Our jobs, money, success. We're worshiping ourselves, our own time, our own entertainment and enjoyment. Oh, but to be ones who live out to those in our household that worship, no matter what is happening, is done through faith that God has given us all that we need in Christ and that he sustains all and that he is worthy to be worshiped. That is the testimony that we should be showing one another within our households that even in the bad days, I can still worship. For those of you that are here in this auditorium that are youth, that are younger in your faith, what does your worship look like? Is it worship that just comes when God's given you what you want. All right, everything's good. I'm happy. I have friends. So I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm happy just to continue on with life. I guess I'll worship God now. Oh, but then when things go bad, it's God the enemy. Our faith in Jesus should cause us to worship every day, regardless of the external circumstances. And if we allow the external circumstances of our life to govern how we think and worship God, 
we'll soon find ourselves worshiping self and the things of this world. Oh, that our hearts would be turned in faith to say, no, it is my faith in God and in Jesus Christ that rules my worship day to day. And what does our worship here in this room say to one another? What about the days that you just don't feel like being here and worshiping? And when I say you, I also mean me. Yeah, believe it or not, even your pastor at times has to think about, I don't want to come in this room today. I don't really feel like worshiping. My heart's not there. There's a lot of things on my mind. There's a lot of things distracting me. There's a lot of discouragements and frustrations. Do we come in here begrudgingly offering to God some of what we have out of duty and obligation? That worship is not going to be acceptable. It will be a testament of our hearts pulling away from the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be really clear. I'm not arguing that worship always has to be joyful and triumphant and wonderful. I think often in our hearts, worship can be mourning and can be sorrowful. It can be lamenting sin and pain and suffering. We cannot let the emotional state of our heart govern our worship. We let our faith in Jesus Christ rule our hearts that we would show up and worship in hopefulness, in trust. Even in the days that I show up and don't really want to be in this room, I can show up and worship with my fellow Christians as a testimony that my hope is not in what I own, and it's not in what I've done. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That my faith would guide my worship and be acceptable to God. When I'm able to do that, to be here and to worship because my heart is set on a solid rock of Christ's work, and it is through faith that I rejoice and I can sing with hope and I can pray in dependence on God and I can receive the preaching of God's word with the expectation that I'll grow, it glorifies God. It protects our heart from the temptation of sin. Acceptable worship not only comes from a heart that is set in faith, but it strengthens a heart in faith. Daniel even made the point last week as he was ending his sermon, thinking about faith is not just my own accomplishment and that I should take confidence that I'm really doing a good job of being, by living in faith. No, my faith is a gift from God. It is his work in my heart. And so as I bring acceptable worship, that worship is working in my own heart that I might be strengthened in my walk with the Lord. And so I press hard in my own heart in the days that I come in here to join with you all, to worship together, to have my mind and my heart focused on the faith that I know will not fail me. Faith that will not let me down because it is God's work in which I rejoice. It is God's work in which I sing praise and I bring that offering all that I have to God himself. So how does our worship of God give evidence 
to the unseen and watching world. One of the first verses that I read this morning, Hebrews 11, says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and proof of what is not seen. If we only worship in a way that gives God honor for what is seen in this world, then we've lost our testimony of worshiping in faith. We worship God in faith in the unseen because we are confident that he is the God who sustains and is worthy of worship and has given us all that we need in Christ Jesus. God cares about how we worship. And the only way that we come before his throne and offer acceptable worship is through our faith and dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you turn your eyes to God and to rejoice in his good work? Acceptable worship can only come from a heart ruled by faith. Would you pray with me? Our God, indeed, we come before you today rejoicing in the good work that you have done through Jesus Christ, that we might have faith in you and you alone that compels us to worship, that we would come before your throne with an offering of all that we have, knowing that you have given us all that we need. And therefore, we keep nothing back. God, that our lives, even outside of this room, in our regular gathering, would be worship in how we respond to the watching world, that our hope is in you, that our joy is in you because you are the one who has given us all that we need. God, that we would be faithful followers of you, taking our eyes off of self and turning them to your faithful love and that we would worship you because you are worthy of all worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.